This episode of Hub Dialogues is a special presentation with Hub advertiser Pathways Alliance. The goal of each episode in this podcast series is to provide Hub listeners with the latest insights and analysis by industry experts and leaders who are acting on Pathways' ambitious call to decarbonize Canada's oil sands production and reach net zero emissions from operations by 2050. For more information on Pathways, visit pathwaysalliance.ca. I'm Roger Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, and I'm really looking forward today to sharing with you a conversation I had with an important First Nations Indigenous leader in Canada. He's someone who's thought long and hard about the changing relationship between First Nations groups, Indigenous communities, and the natural resource sector. I want to explore with him how could the types of big projects that Pathways will need to undertake to reach its ambitious goal, how could these really be exemplars of a new spirit of cooperation and partnership between First Nations groups and industry in Canada. To do this, we're really fortunate to have on the program today, Jean-Paul Gladeau. He's the former president and CEO of the Canadian Council of Aboriginal Businesses. He's also a member of the board of Suncor, and again, has had a storied two and a half decade career in the natural resource sector, working with indigenous communities and organizations, environmental NGOs, industry and government on a whole series of big projects and ideas. He's also the founder and head of his own consultancy group, Makwate, which focuses on bridge building between First Nations communities and industry to find common cause and to create that spirit of partnership that makes so many of these important projects possible in the first place. So the next voice you're going to hear is mine, Roger Griffiths, in conversation with J.P. Glado. J.P., welcome to the Hub Dialogues. Rudyard, it's uh, fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me. Likewise, looking forward to this conversation with you, kind of exploring the Indigenous dimension of a lot of the issues and ideas that Pathways Alliance is grappling with. It's a critical perspective to get on this conversation. So a, a privilege to talk with you today. Let's start kind of big picture, JP, for the benefit of our listeners. How would you characterize the, the kind of state of play right now within Canada's Indigenous communities with regards to these larger ambitions around, you know, net zero, reducing carbon emissions from operations. How is this being perceived? What's the perspective on this? I'd love your insights. Great. That's a, that's a big question. And I would say that it's, you know, I always like to start off, we're not a monolith, of course. Indigenous nations have different political, socioeconomic standings and aspirations. Um, but I would say largely what ties us together is as Mother Earth's, you know, caretakers. We've been stewards of these lands for a very long time. And the alignment of getting to net zero, reducing our impact in the environment, cleaner air, cleaner water, uh, responsible resource development, you know, that's something that we can absolutely all get behind. It's something that I believe Canada needs more of, and I think the global, the global community is looking more towards Indigenous nations across the world. I mean, we are about 5% of the population globally. 
Um, you know, there's a figure of over 80% of the biosphere is in our territories, and there's a big responsibility with that. And we, 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 we think of a seven-generational thinking. We, you know, have knowledge base and land practices that are coming to the forefront. And so there's a really great alignment. And many communities, particularly in Alberta, northeastern BC, Saskatchewan, you know, have been very tied to oil and gas development for their economic well-being. Um, you know, managing poverty is something that our communities have been doing for a very long time. And I can tell you that is absolutely not the place where we desire to be. You know, government handouts is not fun for anybody, particularly our communities. So. You know, now communities that are in those spaces, sort of in those regions, you know, have a familiarity with the oil and gas sector. And it's, it's really interesting because other parts of the country, you know, haven't had that experience. And sometimes the, the conversations, they start to vary a little bit as you kind of get away from the epicenter of, of oil and gas development. But we're starting to see more of NBC now with LNG. So communities are, uh, you know, like a chief Crystal Smith, who was like, we need this oil, sorry, this gas development to make sure we can offset, you know, coal production and everything else and it empowers our community. So there's been a rallying, I believe, uh, nationally, not again, we're not a monolith, not across the board, but I think Indigenous nations see that we have a very important role to play in in the next stages of, of, our, of our energy future. And if there's one awesome statement that I've that I've been really enjoy using, it, came, it, it, it originated from the First Nations Major Projects Coalition Conference a couple of years ago, is that all paths to net zero run through traditional territories of Indigenous communities. And that is an incredible place to be. Nice. You make an important point, JP, because I think there's a perception, again, and it's part of that idea that communities are monolithic and and there isn't a diversity of view, that there are many First Nations groups that have positive views around resource development and that this is seen as a strategy of empowerment, of economic empowerment that, as you say, breaks a a relationship with the government, which we know historically has been troubled, to say the least. Maybe talk a little bit more just about how Indigenous communities are thinking about economic development, because part of, as you know, part of Pathways plan here is that there's going to have to be a lot of infrastructure created around this goal of net zero from operations by 2050 to realize that goal. We're going to need to, in a sense, gear up to achieve a big national project with a lot of infrastructure and a lot of new development. I just want to get your sense of how that's all kind of coming together from an Aboriginal perspective. You know, it is an incredibly exciting time to be First Nation, Métis, or Inuit. You know, being Indigenous in this country has evolved significantly and quite rapidly in the last decade, uh, you know, since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, since, uh, you know, the 215 original mass grave. And Canadians have finally woken up a little bit here. And, you know, I don't have to explain what a residential school or say that both my grandmothers were residential school survivors and that has impact. And so it's great that there's there's... There's now a platform for more communication and conversations that are happening in our country. And what Canada is finally, and industry's gotten it, I think, not all industry, but I think largely many of the large resource companies fully understand that if they're going to advance their projects, if they're going to advance their infrastructure, particularly in Crown lands, well, those are also traditional territories, our communities, that they have to have strong 
relationships with indigenous people and communities. Now, what do those relationships look like is really the, the crux of this conversation. And the evolution of, as I've been alluding to, of this relationship is really important. Canada's competitive edge now is really, I believe, and many of us believe, uh, lies in the relationship with Indigenous communities. And maybe just premise it with Indigenous communities can and people can advance an agenda so far. Industry can advance an agenda so far. But when you tie a, a strong relationship based on reciprocity and respect, I'm going to get into, I'm going to dig in a little bit deeper into that, with Indigenous and industry going to governments, that is a very potent mix to get stuff done. And so what is competitive? What does it look like? And it is no longer just engineering the heck out of an idea or a project and going to a queue and say, what do you think of this? This is going to be great for you. Oh, just trust us. This is, you know, going to get some jobs out of this. Well, no, that's not the way that you actually build a relationship and trust. Now it's about how can we make sure that your community is a true equitable partner in this project? Because this runs through your territories and we recognize the end that we are all treaty people and that, except to BC, of course, that's, that's another subject, but we recognize that your longstanding history and, and, and the premise that we need to share is important. And so we're going to create these equitable opportunities for communities to participate in these projects. So why, why is that so important? Equity is a form of consent. If you and I invest in something, you know, the last thing we're going to do is go beat up our project. We're going to do whatever we can to support that project if it's done in a great way. And what does that look like? It's well, it's making sure that Indigenous communities are engaged from the very beginning, that we're part of the, the design, that we're part of the construction, that we're part of the operations, that we're part of decommissioning and land reclamation. And that, you know, that seven generational thinking is brought into all of that. And then from a regulatory process, and one of the examples that I like to, to, to raise is around the uh, Ring of Fire in Northern Ontario. You know, the two First Nations that are, three First Nations largely are supporting that project. The, the core communities are supporting that, 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 that idea of, of, um, of a road to, uh, to access the, the mining area. While it's actually communities that are helping co-lead the regulatory process, the environmental assessment. And when we get more Indigenous leadership in environmental assessments, that helps us get through the regulatory processes that, that, we, that we need to get through. And then lastly, you know, we've all felt it you know, in every sector. Where did, where did the human resources go? Where did the human capital go? Well, much of that human capital in, in you know, much of the world, and you know, we're even seeing in China now where population is, is starting to decrease. But when you look at Canada, Indigenous population is the fastest growing demographic in the country. That's our human capital. That's, our, that's what's going to provide certainty and cost effectiveness to the way that we advance our projects. So when we think again about our competitive nature, industry is starting to really understand that, you know, we are going to advance projects quicker. They're going to be more sustainable. And from an ESG and I perspective, the indigenous in, in the environment, the social and the governments, we can talk more about that, is going to be absolutely crucial in the way that we advance projects together in this country. Now, JP, you've written about it and you know about some groups, a lot of them outside of Canada, that are very aggressive in promoting, you know, messages of really no resource development and painting a picture, at least in terms of a lot of public perceptions in Canada, that that there's a consensus around this amongst uh, First Nations 
communities. And I guess when it comes to something like, you know, these complicated large-scale technologies like carbon sequestration, carbon capture, is there a worry here, JP, about your voice, about the voices of Indigenous communities getting drowned out by outside actors that maybe for the best of intentions, possibly ill-informed, but for the best of intentions, are pursuing, in a sense, you know, a zero development mandate on behalf of their foundations or on behalf of their advocacy groups or, or causes? Can we, you know, how do we get through this? How do we go forward when those outside voices are quite powerful, they've got a lot of money, and they're out there trying to shape public opinion right now? Yeah, that, that, I mean, that is certainly a worry. And, you know, off the top, Indigenous people are quite capable of speaking for ourselves. And that needs the bottom line. That needs to be the bottom line in public policy and sentiment. If you really want to understand the issues, go to the communities to understand. We don't need, and, and you know, they're often called eco-colonialists within our communities, others speaking for us. And certainly, I think some are very well-intentioned. I think that, um, you know, we all want to make sure that our future is is clean, but we also need energy and we also need to make sure that our economy doesn't falter because that creates, as you know, as we all know, significant impact in, in, in the way that we're able to live. But what I've seen is that, you know, our collective voice in Canada, and again, we're not a monolith, there are a lot of Indigenous people that as well that are opposed to any kind of development as well. But I think as a, as a large part, a, a, a large number of us support. And and the Indigenous Resource Network is a really great organization to check out. They, uh, John Desjardins is their executive director, CEO. And, you know, back when I was involved with the group, more intimately, we went out and did this uh, in Veronics, in Veronics poll. And if you believe in science, well, you believe in polling science. It, uh, you know, it actually shows that, you know, 65, 67% of Indigenous people in rural areas actually support resource development. So you've got to go to the source to understand. Like, there's, there's so much misinformation out there. But it does worry me that these, and, and you're kind of reflecting on uh, maybe that article in the Toronto Star that I put out, I picked a fight with the Incredible Hulk, uh, you know, and Mark uh, Ruffalo. Mr. Ruffalo and, you know, DiCaprio and even our own Neil Young. You know, they're 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 getting a snapshot view. And in that article, what I encouraged them, like I'm encouraging folks now is like you just come to our communities and understand us. Don't, you know, take one voice or one perspective without digging deeper to really formulate these strong opinions. I mean, it's it's unfortunate that one Hollywood voice outweighs the voice of a, of, of a Crystal Smith in our own country, who's an incredible Indigenous woman, or Chief Charlene Gale up in, in Treaty 8 territory. You know, it's, it's incumbent on Canadians to do the work to understand. But I think going back to the industry, Indigenous relationships, you know, having those partnerships um, reflected in like the recent Enbridge deal, you know, Indigenous 23 First Nation and Métis communities are actually, you know, equity owners in a project. And think about the socioeconomic impact that's going to have in community as well as the partnership. When Enbridge goes forward now, they can point to this project and go, listen, we're not just walking the walk. We're talking the talk. Look what we're doing. Or another story I like to share quite often is around, you know, the Clearwater deal. You know, again, the, the non-native uh, fisher people were, you know, the racists, quite frankly, were, you know, burning shacks, burning boats, burning traps. 
because they were afraid of the idea of what a moderate living meant for the Mi'kmaq people and the fisheries. Well, advance that story a year forward, and now the Mi'kmaq own 50% of the Clearwater deal. Now those racist fisher people now have to sell their fish to the First Nations that they were harassing the year before. Gotta, Canada's got to pay attention to, to, to this storyline because this is going this this across sectors is starting to really proliferate and it's it's all based on good relationships you're one click away from getting access to all the hub's best analysis and insights visit our website www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest every saturday morning we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation courtesy of the hub again you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now free of charge at www.thehub.ca now back to our program there's a movement towards increasing ownership. So as you say, equity creates real partnership because you're co-invested. You're co-invested in the success of these natural resource, oil and gas and other projects that that investment in turn feeds back into the community. It creates economic opportunity. It lessens dependency on government, which is something everybody would like less of, not more. So that's an interesting take because it it's happening, JP. But I think the the perception often on the outside to the to the underinformed, I won't say ill-informed, but the underinformed is that you know there is a more of a monolithic view against development, a skepticism, a deep skepticism about the industry and its intentions. But what I'm hearing from you is at least as it relates to, as you say, the diversity of First Nations communities, which are have all kinds of different perspectives and views. But generally, there's a feeling that something JP has changed, like that, that maybe you're saying industries change, that there's a new kind of awareness on the part of industry. Is that where the, the shift is occurring? I believe industry has shifted significantly across the board. I mean, we've had you know, longstanding progressive relationships and, you know, like procurement activities. You know, Suncor last year alone, we spent $3.4 billion on the Indigenous economy. We got, you know, 40, 46 petrol can stations across the country with Indigenous communities. Like, they're real great partnerships uh, happening, longstanding partnerships. But now it's the advancement through equity. You know, I, I believe, and you know, I, 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 I was... Uh, listening to this panel many years ago in Toronto and they had this prominent environmental leader and this prominent oil and gas leader. I'm not going to mention who they were. And, you know, the conference was like, listen, these industries don't get up and figure okay, how we can destroy the environment today. And I don't believe environment, like well-meaning intention environmental organizations, okay, how we can destroy the economy today. It's, it's about how are we going to advance responsible development? And, and, and it's next iteration of energy development and we, we recognize we've got a transition to more of a greener economy. We've got these massive targets, net zero. That's going to take so much resource. It's going to take so many partnerships, a new policy, new way of doing things. Like if we're going to meet these targets, we're going to have to think and act differently. And companies are acting differently because now we're talking about carbon capture utilization systems, hydrogen. Well, communities are part of this process now. And like, how do we create space for indigenous communities to participate in that whole life cycle of a project from the inception, 
the Pathways Alliance are talking to the communities. How are we going to build this together? How are we going to operate it together? The, the whole ecosystem, I believe, has changed significantly because we've woken up. We, we, are, we can't get back to the fighting in the trenches anymore. That's not going to get us to where we need to go. It's about how do we create true partnerships together. Indigenous communities largely are stepping into that space with vigor. Uh, you know, across many of the energy projects, both wind, solar, hydro, we're having conversations around SMRs, um, hydro developments, uh, transmission lines. Communities are right in there now. And 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 this is the story. The, uh, the I think this is the best untold story in Canada yet and with Canadians. They just don't understand how embedded we are in these conversations now and how this is going to transform our energy sectors and how this is going to transform our communities and how this is going to be just the way that we do business in the future. And, and I think this model should be celebrated more globally. There are Indigenous communities around the world that um, can and want to, um, you know, participate in this change. It's, it's an exciting time and yeah. there's, there's a lot of work to do. That's where I wanted to go with you next is the kind of global piece. Like to what extent are the developments that are happening in Canada with increasing engagement and active participation, in since the equity participation, the co-ownership of Indigenous communities in Canada, you know, can that be modeled for other jurisdictions around the world? Are people watching Canada? Is there an opportunity for us to kind of lead here, not only on, you know, carbon capture, carbon sequestration, but the, the tactics that we bring to the strategy? seems to me like where there's a whole lot of additional value that could be mined out of this, proverbially mined out of this, this initiative for, you know, net zero emissions from oil sands operations by 2050. Now, it's funny you say mind. A group of Indigenous leaders, including myself, early spring this year went over to London, UK to meet with the mining sector and as well as the finance sector. They're looking at Canada and going, we know... We get a storyline from the government about what Indigenous relationships are, and we kind of get a little bit deeper of a story from the mining companies themselves that we're investing in. But we need to really understand what the Indigenous perception is. And it was the first of its kind to have this UK Indigenous-led Canadian delegation to go there to, that, that we were surrounded by some of the biggest finance firms and mining companies in the world because they were very keen to know our story and our perspective because they're only getting part of it. And, and you know, so yes, global finance and, and, and firms are looking in mining, oil and gas, are looking to and better understand the relationship because they, they, they're starting to understand that their capital is at risk if the relationships are, are not strong. And, but they also have a, they are all starting to see that when you get those relationships right, and we're now the, we're talking about equity, right? Now, how do you create capital for Indigenous communities to access? So, you know, just a personal story. So, I just built my house on my reserve, and um, I can't leverage my asset. I had to build it with cash uh, because I can't get a mortgage because it's on Indian lands, Indian Act lands, unless I have the First Nation Land Management Act, which we have, we're working through it, to get to build equity over time. Our communities have not been able to do that until relatively recently. So how do we get access to capital, create multi-generational wealth, if we can't even le leverage our own assets on our own lands, which are held in trust by the government? 
So getting access to capital has been one of the biggest – affordable capital has been one of the biggest challenges that our communities have been facing these days. So organizations like the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation and their billion-dollar fund on that Enbridge deal was fantastic because – they backstopped $250 million. They were go, went to the markets. BMO was able to hedge, their, hedge the rest of the, the, the debt through the banks. And, you know, there's a lot of certainty around that project. They got that deal done in six months. Incredible. Now there was no deal risk because bitumen was flowing one way. The Dillons were flowing another way. There was no construction risk, mind you. We've got to figure that out. But communities that they didn't have access to that capital – it'd be very difficult to actually participate in a project because equity requires money. So we're thinking, and, and, and there's a lot of pressure, I think, on the federal government and more provincial governments to raise the, 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 the idea of these, these, these instruments to support community. And so once you backstop through these types of capital pools, or like the Canadian Infrastructure Bank is thinking about a larger pool, I hope, then these, these firms that come over from London are going, okay, government's in. We're in now. Let's, capital's not like money's never the issue. It's the relationship is the issue, and there's lots of there's trillions of dollars out there to invest in in this energy transition and 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 doing things better in the oil and gas sector. But if we if we can't get the relationships right, then we can't get the capital. And the capital is it, it's it's a symbiotic relationship. So we got to get better at these relationships. Yeah, it's a key point. You know, I think Hernando de Soto, the economist, really kind of impressed on me and many others, this idea that if, if assets aren't papered and you can't take those assets and in a sense lever them, borrow against them, wealth creation is extremely difficult. And, and he, I think, convincingly argued, and there's a whole field of development theory behind it, that a lot of the problems in third world economies are precisely that, that no one has title to the house or they can't figure out the title. So no one can leverage that asset, so you can't borrow against it, so you can't start businesses, you can't find a pathway to some form of greater financial resiliency and independence. So I really like this idea in a sense of, you know, ESGI, like adding to that thinking about what is ethical investing, what are ethical partnerships, you know, an, an indigenous component. And do you, do you think that's, JP, where ultimately we could be Headed? Are there policy frameworks or things that you think governments and regulators could do right now to kind of push all of us more in that direction to really create an economy where First Nations people have all of the benefits of ownership? And as you say, the benefits that first non-First Nations communities have, have enjoyed, which is intergenerational wealth and intergenerational wealth transfer and accumulation, which we know are just critical to long-term prosperity and, again, resiliency. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And I, I think, you know, government's role is to create the space through policy to make sure that these relationships can establish and you create these on-ramps for being able to paper your, your wealth so that you can get into the economic stream and I don't have the this, the answers to to that, but I but what I do believe is that the relationship between the industries, whether that's mining, oil, gas, forestry, fisheries, grains, etc., they recognize that their future is dependent, I think, largely on the relationship with the communities. Again, partnering and making room in their procurement 
making room in their advancement of their future projects and even past projects like the Enbridge deal again for Indigenous communities is going to be a really important segue into improving the the life of Indigenous Canadians. And, you know, unfortunately, still many communities suffer uh, on all sorts of fronts, and the 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 way forward is um, is through business development in all sorts of sectors. So, you know, to 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 create these these policies and these instruments, I think we have most of it right now. We've got examples of major billion dollar projects that are now happening across the country in various sectors. You know, peeling apart the components of what those look like. It's again, it's going to take, you know, the, the policy instruments like the government backstops and provincial. We talk about regulatory. Well, we've got to get better at the, the regulatory process because it's very cumbersome. There's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of uncertainty. We can't build anything in 15 years when the states can do it in two or three years. We've got to get better at, you know, at, at, at our infrastructure development in this country. So, you know, I think all the components are there. And, and the, the willingness of Indigenous communities to step into that space, too, is going to be dependent on do we see ourselves in it or we're going to the old game again where we're on the outside looking and that's not going to happen anymore. The, uh, the, the, from an Indigenous community perspective, what I've seen working really well and it's, it's common, becoming incredibly commonplace now as communities creating economic development corporations that manage the business aspects. Of, of communities and actually seeing more Indigenous communities working together in multi-faceted, uh, very complex governance systems where they come together as one, one body to work with, uh, like an Enbridge as an example. You know, there are, there are a lot of, I said, we have so many of the, the, the components that are working and now it's just like, let's figure out how to make these interconnect better and do more of it. And we need more capital for our communities to be able to participate and afford, and again, it's gotta be affordable. Great, uh, important and positive messages to end this conversation on JP. Thank you so much for giving us your time and insights today. I really enjoyed connecting with you. I've learned so much and I know our listeners have too. So again, greatly appreciate this dialogue. Thank you so much, I appreciate it as well. This episode of Hub Dialogues was a paid promotional partnership with Pathways Alliance. For more information about Pathways and their plans to decarbonize Canada's oil sands production to reach net zero emissions from operations by 2050, visit pathwaysalliance.ca. Are you a leading industry group with an important public policy message? If so, be sure to check out the Hub's new digital marketing platform. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca forward slash marketing.